You are listening to Dirt Work with Adam Morrissey. Hello and welcome to Dirt Work. This is your host, Adam Morrissey. Today I'm honored to be joined by a member of the Texas House of Representatives, Mr. Carl Sherman. Carl, how's it going today? It's going well, Adam. How are you, sir? Doing well. Um, You know, I'm really excited to talk more about equitable cities. But before I do that, I'm going to attempt to give your background justice. And I use the word attempt very intentionally because there's a lot in there. So for listeners that are unfamiliar with Carl, he has been identified as a transformational leader in faith, government, and business. He's a member of the Texas House of Representatives, which he proudly represents District 109, which includes many areas of Southern Dallas County. Prior to his role in the Texas House, he served as the mayor of DeSoto, as well as the city manager in both the cities of Ferris and Hutchins, Texas. Independent of his public service, Mr. Sherman is currently a senior pastor at a local church, as well as formerly a tech entrepreneur in which he took an electronic payments processing company public on both domestic and foreign stock exchanges. How'd I do? You did well, sir. That's a a lot. Okay. Yeah, there's certainly a lot in there. That's my thoughts as well. So I guess with that, you know, when I when I read your background, I have to laugh and wonder. You know, you've done so many things. Where have you found the time? Well, I, I've been incredibly uh, blessed to have a wonderful wife uh, of 33 years, Michelle, uh, who has uh, really uh, helped me to be able to do all those things. Uh, and, uh, because a lot of those things are, are, uh, you know, it takes, it takes a team, uh, to get those things accomplished. And by the grace of God, uh, he has afforded me, uh, the real currency, I think, that we have in life. Uh, it's sort of like what you said when you sent, uh, me, uh, the information, Jermaine, to this episode nine. Uh, you, you asked me to budget a certain amount of time. Uh, and, and that, that's powerful, you know, uh, that you, you know, really uh, succinctly said what we have, uh, really in currency in life is our time. And, uh, one has to appropriate, uh, their time wisely to be able to maximize what they can get done. And uh, you've got to, uh, you know, Lords will have, uh, people that are willing to team up with you, whether it be by, uh, you know, matrimonial covenant or, uh, strategic alliances, uh, that you can, you can, uh, you know, multiply your efforts by that. And then, you know, we've got five kids that I've been incredibly blessed to uh, have, uh, my wife and I, that have all been very supportive uh, because when dad is doing this, this means that dad can't do that. But uh, uh, we've been able to focus and keep the main thing the main thing. So every every one of those things, uh, in a nutshell, uh, they there's a lot of synergy with them. Uh, so yeah, so, you know, you may be in different spaces, but, uh, I, I think, uh, all those duties sort of align, uh, and, uh, it's, so it's easier, uh, to transition, uh, from one thing to the other. Sure. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, do you get any synergy or time benefits from the format of the Texas state government? My, my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the legislative sessions are every two years, right? That's right. I, I, 
You know, that's a good question. I've, you know, obviously uh, never had, you know, any other experience with any other state legislation. We're the only one, I think, that does it every other year. Uh, I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Adam, I, I, you know, I I think that, uh, you know, us doing it this way is sort of like Chicago Bulls when they played with the triangle offense, you know, and nobody else did it, uh, you know, but then after they won championships, other teams started employing that same strategy. I haven't seen any other state try to do what we're doing, nor talk about it, so I'm not sure uh, if it's more advantageous for us scheduling-wise. Uh, I know we, we work intensely uh, during that uh, 141 days, I think, that we're in session every other year. Uh, I wish that there could be more thought given uh, to the legislative process uh, so that you're not trying to condense it all in that short period of time. Now, understood, and, I, and, I, I, and I'm sure none of the listeners will assume that by saying Comparing the legislative session to the Chicago Bulls, that you're insinuating that Texas is not a championship state. So, not at um, all. There is no inference of that. I mean, we we are the yeah. Lone Star State, and uh, we have more corporate headquarters here than any other state. And uh, I think we probably could argue that between our pro teams, uh, we have more, uh, you know, champions uh, than any other state. And I think we could also say that football is truly king here, and our high school yeah. football talent and basketball proves it. So, Sure. So, you know, after doing such a variety of things, what, what attracted you to public service? Yeah, I think it was a natural progression for me uh, because I am interested in uh, helping, uh, you know, people improve the quality of life as a community, uh, not necessarily, uh, you know, just uh, individualistic, uh, but uh, as as a community community and uh, I think that there are ways that you can do that uh, when you're serving whether it's at the local level in government or, or state or national uh, you have an opportunity to uh, bring everyone together and see how we can uh, align their interest uh, with what resources we have to ensure that Everyone gets a better quality education, healthcare, uh, infrastructure, roads, and uh, uh, so that that really, you know, policy just seemed to be the next transition for me. Sure, and when we talk about policy, for my count, you've been involved in authoring or sponsoring nearly a hundred bills. You mentioned a couple issues of healthcare, education, and infrastructure. What has been the top focuses for your time in the state Senate? Yeah. You know, uh, I I serve on appropriations, and uh, uh, some uh, believe that, you know, that's the most powerful committee. I I don't know, but uh, certainly Texas has, you know, the biggest budget of all the states in the union with approximately $250 billion, uh, or at least... uh, if it's second, it's second only to California. Uh, you know, that's been important. I'll say this. Uh, I'm one of only two freshmen on appropriations. 
Haman House Admin, all of those, House Admin determines the budgets for all of the committees. Appropriations uh, puts forth a budget for the entire state. But Corrections is also a committee I serve on. My head is in Appropriations and House Admin. Because of my experience as a former city manager with budgeting process, with the budgeting process, but my heart is in corrections. So uh, a great deal of my focus has been on criminal justice reform, uh, changing changing our system and the cast of our system, uh, and, and uh, that has been you know really uh, the biggest part of my focus legislatively. Secondly, it, it is uh, healthcare and education uh, together. They are. To me, uh, they're equal cohorts because if a person's health uh, is not uh, up to par, then they can't get the optimum educational experience. And so I think we uh, should tackle those uh, equally. And then third, it has been the quality of life. Uh, trying to help uh, stimulate economic development, quality economic development in the district that I serve, uh, which is in the North Texas area, Dallas, Cedar Hill, DeSoto, Lancaster, uh, and uh, Hutchins, Wilmer, Ferris, Ovilla, Glen Heights, uh, and uh, part of Sigaville. So uh, this area, just for perspective, is uh, the south suburban area of the Dallas-Fort uh, Worth Metroplex. These last six months or so with the pandemic, and no one we're talking about you know, opportunities for change and also the criminal justice activity from this summer has pr promoted a lot of reflection and time for learning. I had the chance to read Richard Rothstein's Color of Law this summer, which to me really opened my eyes to the, the impact that policy can have on the development of cities and also the creation of inequality, particularly those through housing, through redlining and real estate steering. How have you seen these policies and, and policies in general contribute to the development of cities? Well, you know, uh, this has been uh, deeply rooted in, in our nation's founding, you know, uh, sort of racial zoning uh, of the country. Yeah. Even since the uh, what, and I, I'm looking at this, uh, Adam, from the perspective of uh, the uh, original Americans, okay? I, I don't call them Native Americans uh, because, you know, they were the Americans that, that you know, those uh, yeah. folks saw uh, the people coming here as invaders and as occupiers. Uh, and when they began, the occupiers, you know, uh, our founding fathers uh, began uh, placing these individuals on reservations. And it was, according to Andrew Jackson, I believe, uh, a problem he needed to uh, fix. And so the removal uh, of the Indians Act, uh, that uh, created the first start of this sort of uh, relocation of the indigenous people uh, to a certain area. And, you know, after slavery, the horrible sin of slavery, uh, then you had the Emancipation Proclamation. And, of course, that then gave uh, the Urshadan to Reconstruction, right? So, so now you've got 
the African American population uh, that uh, the Southerners aren't comfortable with uh, their newfound freedom and their newfound liberties to uh, fulfill their aspirations and they want to put them back. The book you mentioned, uh, The Color of Law, uh, I think succinctly says uh, this uh, in the racial zoning part where it talks about how uh, President Rutherford, uh, you know, he made the compromise with the South uh, to revert uh, you know, Reconstruction and bring all of the Union soldiers out and uh, it then uh, really had the uh, result of putting African Americans in their place. And today, you know, we still have this issue because, uh, you know, imagine if you were to buy a product and, and I use this uh, metaphor, a product, because Essentially, uh, the the uh, pilgrims, uh, you know, uh, our forefathers, fathers saw uh, Africans as chattel. They saw them as less than human, and uh, they transported them here for the purpose of those people being used by our forefathers, our founding fathers. Uh, as a product that they could do whatever they decided to do with them. Well, in slavery, and then you've got no use for that product. So as far as, you, as, far as you're concerned, uh, that's a problem. Every time I see a black person walking around free, that's a problem because uh, he should be working my fields. Uh, Cotton was king. He should be producing uh, that work. I, I never had to pay him before. Why should I pay him now? And, you know, now you have today where African Americans are paid less uh, than whites. Uh, and uh, those policies, those beliefs became policies uh, developed by legislation, obviously, uh, to create other uh, policies, laws uh, that would cement this caste uh, through things like Black Code, uh, where in the 1870s, imagine this, for an African American to start a business, as an entrepreneur, he had to pay $100 to start a business. A white individual paid nothing to start a business. It was zero. Uh, you know, everybody's got to have capital uh, to, you know, fund your business, but to, to pay the state that $100. Then you got redlining, which obviously, as you know, uh, prevented uh, African Americans uh, of getting loans uh, in the areas that they had been uh, you know, the, the areas that they had been allowed uh, to live in, they couldn't even get a loan or insurance uh, to, uh, to build their homes in those areas. So all of this is a part of our foundation, which was then cemented in legislation. And now, you know, because we are now in the 21st century and we are very poor educators of our real history, uh, then most folks don't understand uh, that 
where we are today, it's concomitant to, you know, the original sin, and it's all driven by racism uh, that did this. But no one wants to, you know, accept that. It's you got to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, <laughs> you know, and and uh, that's that's herein is a problem. You just don't have ambition. If you had drive like I did then you too would be able to get and afford these things. Uh, so it's, it's, it's pretty interesting when, when you ask the, you know, uh, the question about the you know, equities and, and societal change, uh, and obviously from the color of uh, law. So you know, six months into this pandemic, uh, I really think, that what this pandemic has shown us uh, more glaring are the injustices economically, uh, socially, uh, and uh, legislatively from the law perspective, uh, how there's disparity even in sentencing. And that eight minutes and 46 seconds that rang around the world of George Floyd uh, being uh, killed uh, by the officer who placed his knee on his neck was really uh, a manifestation of the spirit of Bull Connor, uh, who was the uh, public safety director, uh, I think, from Alabama, who uh, stood uh, for segregation and was a Ku Klux Klan member uh, all of this, to me, was a manifestation of what we dealt with then, and it was seen vividly just from that video. But I think most Americans should ask, how many George Floyds were not caught on video? Yeah, I mean, you alluded to it. I mean, certainly very interesting, and you know, the word that came to my mind while we're talking about how deep-seated a lot of these policies are is inertia. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, I, I, from an example from the color of law that I thought was pretty remarkable was when we talk about place and districting, um, in the 1920s, 1930s, Austin, Texas had a plan to redistribute where the African-American communities were and they couldn't find a way to constitutionally accomplish it. So they moved the location of the segregated schools, parks, and other services, which just in turn, you know, forced the migration that they wanted, which, you know, when we talk about the issues that you focus on, um, education, infrastructure, criminal justice, you know, what, what, do you see a ripple effect from these districting and um, segregationist policies into other areas such as education, healthcare, and transportation? Absolutely. Um, you know, it, it is a continuation, but one uh, that is more subtle uh, than uh, the blatant uh, discrimination that structured uh, the laws uh, when Jim Crow was established or Black Code was established. Uh, you know, you, you now today uh, just have to follow the money, uh, and and you've 
you know, you can see where infrastructure is improved uh, vastly uh, and uh, differently than in areas where it is heavily minority populated. But those, uh, the redistricting or the uh, sort of uh, migration of people of color uh, to a certain area and those areas being uh, the majority, where there are majority-minority areas, uh, typically those are the areas that uh, whites in general uh, intentionally don't consider. Uh, I, I had a friend of mine, he's since passed, he was the CEO of... Uh, of uh, one of the technology companies here in uh, in North Texas, and a major corporation, publicly traded, and he lived in the same city that I live in, uh, the city of DeSoto, and he was telling me about his experience living in a multi-million dollar home in in one of our uh, you know nice communities and. Uh, we were sitting in his backyard, and he was telling me about how he moved here, he and his family, from Ohio, where he used to be an executive uh, with AT&T. And he got this job at, with his tech company as the president's CEO. Well, he's looking at the area and the corporate relocators that the company has hired to bring all the executives here that he has brought as his team. They're all steering them to go to Frisco, uh, to uh, Prosper, uh, Texas, and uh, Richardson, and I think McKinney. And he decided that he was going to come and find a church first. And this, you know, he's, he's white, and he's going to find a church first. And he found the church, Trinity Church, which is in Cedar Hill, Texas. And then he decided... Okay, after I found my church, and I'm going to find a home. And that's where he found his home, down the street from the church, uh, in one of our subdivisions called Frost Farms. And uh, that's where he bought a home. But he said the realtor tried to sway him from moving south. And this is what the realtor said to him, to sway him from moving. You don't want to move there. It's as black as Africa. Now this is, you know, this is uh, 2003, I think, 2002. This is what the realtor told him. And these are the conversations that are being, uh, you know, had in, in uh, corporate America. Uh, it is not as blatant, as it's not as explicit as the conversations were uh, you know, obviously, uh, after Reconstruction, but it's still, you know, akin to uh, that same language uh, that you, uh, you know, uh, know that's in the book, uh, The Color of Law. That's devastating and horrific to hear. Um, you know, part of this conversation was inspired by a previous Dirtwork episode with the director of the real estate program at SMU, Joseph Cahoons, when, you know, we're talking about equitable cities. 
the idea of that, you know, equitable cities, healthier cities, it's only going to positively benefit everyone, not only just from a real estate standpoint, but also a quality of life. With the inertia that's in place, what are cities around the country doing to create more sustainable and equitable cities? You know, I think uh, Austin uh, is an example. You mentioned them earlier, uh, but I also think they're an example of a city that's, uh, you know, shifting the paradigm in uh, development and creating uh, equitable cities or an equitable city with policies uh, that are intended uh, to reverse uh, some of these things. And uh, I know that uh, back in 2015, I think it was, a, uh, they started an effort to counter this by uh, hiring or searching uh, for someone who could lead that effort. And right now, uh, that's what they're doing. I, I think that's, you know, that's a model. But let me just say this. All of these things, uh, you know, are very hard work to do. Because it's, it's, you know, it's culture uh, that is really uh, the cornerstone of anything that we're going to try and change. Uh, Peter Drucker said that, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Uh, so all of these things are driven by culture. I want to give you an example. When I was mayor of the city of DeSoto uh, back in 2010, I started meeting with a group of young uh, white professionals who lived in our city. And uh, every week, every Wednesday morning, we would meet uh, and we would talk about, uh, and, and literally, you know, I would give them assignments. And the reason I started this was because uh, I had met with the folks that were doing the census. This was back in 2010. And they were giving me reports of uh, sort of major exodus of young whites uh, from uh, the city of DeSoto. And so I wanted to, you know, meet with them regularly, uh, the ones that were there and had made a commitment to remain there. Uh, and, you know, I asked them, what's your ideal city? And so they would, you know, give me their ideal cities, the dream city, if they didn't live in DeSoto, where would they live? And every one of these cities uh, was overwhelmingly majority white. Uh, and, but I, I, I uh, asked them what was the most important thing to them uh, in regards to finding a city. All these folks had young children. Uh, and they told me that the school system was the most important thing to them. None of these, uh, you know, folks, they were in their uh, 30s and 40s, had children in the school system, in the public school system. So I asked them, if the school district was number one in the nation, academically, was number one in the nation in every critical category that you use to measure the performance of a school district, would you place your children in the public school system here. And every one of them, Adam, without exception, said no. Now, one of the things that, you know, we agreed to in meeting was that you have to be completely honest. 
and transparent about, and there is not going to be any judgment here. So they gave me their answer, and it was no, they would not put their children in the public school system in the city. And I asked why, and they all said, because their children would be outnumbered. Wow. Now that speaks to a certain uh, mindset that has been established about people of color, uh, and there is a fear that people uh, have of people of color. And, you know, it, it's uh, that's one of those things you, you know, you really, you wonder how do you change that? Because so much of this is based on our history. But the fact is, the people of color were not the people who were lynching the other people. Uh, and, and so there is a long history uh, there that we have to be honest about. Uh, we're always wanting to get to reconciliation, but, but we've got to have some truth here. And until we have, uh, you know, it's, as uh, I think it was uh, Benjamin Franklin that said, until the people who are not affected by the injustices behave themselves as though they are the ones who are being oppressed uh, and champion for the oppressed, uh, then nothing will change. It will remain uh, the same. Yeah. You know, when we think about change, you know, I know Texas is in a redistricting process currently. and This is something that all cities and states do at some point. What is at stake during a redistricting? Yeah. Well, right now, uh, yeah, it, 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 you know, redistricting, what is at stake is fair representation uh, by the general population. And so uh, politics uh, comes into play, and often you will have folks, well, right now in the state of Texas, uh, folks in rural counties have uh, more influence on legislation uh, than folks who live in the metro areas. Uh, they have a disproportionate number of representatives uh, that represent their interest uh, in Austin than the most populated uh, centers of our state. And uh, that, you know, is at stake, is that uh, we need to ensure that there is equality in representation. And when those areas where the people are, uh, you know, densely populated don't get uh, fair representation, uh, then resources are not uh, provided to them, uh, you know, according to their uh, their uh, population. And so I, that's at stake. Uh, and... Uh, you know, there is a constant push and pull uh, where, you know, uh, typically you're going to have uh, two polar opposites as far as major parties. Uh, one will fight hard uh, to preserve uh, things to the way they were uh, years ago. Uh, and the other party will generally uh, fight hard uh, to, you know, progress uh, things uh, to where, uh, you know, they feel we should be going. And somehow, some way, 
uh, we've got to, uh, I think, meet in the middle ground. Uh, but uh, that's really what's at stake is, is that uh, fair representation ensuring uh, that the state provides for all the citizens of uh, the state of Texas. We're going to be at 30 million people, according to the demographers, by the end of this year. 30 million people. Uh, and with that growth, uh, the demographics are changing in this state uh, quite rapidly. Uh, the Hispanic population uh, and uh, the African-American population are growing uh, and in comparisons to the uh, white population, uh, the uh, people of color are going to ultimately outnumber, uh, you know, the, uh, the the white population. And so, you know, we, we've got to make sure that we have a system that is fair so that it is not uh, based on color. Uh, but if we don't change the way we've done things, then the only thing that will change is that uh, the people of color will be practicing the same things that were practiced on them. And I don't think that's a world that we want to live in. Uh, I, I think we, we need to get to more of an egalitarian uh, kind of uh, you know, community. And that doesn't mean uh, that you, know, you don't have a capitalist system. Uh, this is what has driven this country uh, to be, uh, I think, uh, the leading uh, GDP nation in the world uh, is that competitive, uh, you know, basis, our foundation being a capitalistic society. Certainly a lot at stake and certainly deep, complex issues. You've been very gracious with your time today, Carl. But before I let you go, what reading materials would you recommend for listeners to stay educated on the topics of equitability and the development of cities? Well, there, there is a book that uh, I just finished reading, uh, and it talks about the influence of uh, the church in you know, our politics, uh, and it's called The Color of Compromise. Uh, I, I just think that it's a fascinating book, The Color of Compromise, uh, because it talks about our nation being built on a Judeo-Christian uh, foundation and how we have uh, essentially uh, woven into our fabric uh, the, you know, sort of justifying the, the racial divide in our nation. And uh, I just, uh, I think it's a pretty good book. So, <laughs> The Color of Compromise. Yeah, Color of Compromise. We'll make sure to have a link to that in the article summary. But Carl, again, appreciate you coming on the show today. Certainly complex issues, but appreciate you educating us on them. And best of luck uh, this fall. Thank you, Adam. I appreciate you. This podcast has been very interesting to me. I've had a chance to listen uh, to uh, my first one, and uh, I found found it very intriguing talking about the hotel industry and uh, yeah. looking forward to catching up. Very good. Thanks again, Carl. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Dirt Work with Adam Morrissey. We'll have a new episode out next month. If you have any story suggestions or want more info on the show or myself, 
hit me up on LinkedIn.